0: Welcome to The Vine, a Plant Media Project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics, and ending the stigma through educational discussions. This week, Plant Media Project hosted Awakening, an exploration of plant medicine a free virtual event featuring informative talks for medical professionals, followed by a panel discussion of plant medicine professionals from coast to coast.
1: The event began with Dr. Matthew Mintz. He is a doctor of internal medicine with a private concierge practice in Bethesda, Maryland. Also the author of Medical Marijuana and CBD, A Physician's Guide for Patients. Let's tune into a clip from his talk at Awakening.
2: So as far as cannabis, we've been using cannabis, you know, again, uh, we've used plants as a medicine for centuries, we've been using cannabis as medicines for centuries. Uh, Some of the uh, in ancient times, there are Chinese medical texts dating back to early centuries BC. Uh, In Indian uh, Ayurvedic medicine, uh, there's texts that look to that, even Greek and Roman times, they've been using it. The first real sort of sense that we got that uh, cannabis was used as medicine was back in 1839 uh, Professor uh, Dr. William O'Shaughnessy uh, went down to India and did some research there and published it in sort of the modern literature. And by the 19th and early 20th centuries, it was in uh, typical use. Sarah, if you could put up uh, the first slide. Um, this is a, a slide I like to show. Um, there we go. So these are uh, actual cannabis medicines that you would go to the you know, 1900s version of Walgreens and CVS. And you would go into the store, no prescription, no card. It was, you know, typical tonics and elixirs that had cannabis in it. And these were not, you know, you know, uh, snake oil kind of stuff. These these were traditional medicines made by like Eli Lilly and Wyeth and, and like the sort of the big drug companies of the day. So you could do that, and it was very very popular for all sorts of things. All right, thank you, Sarah um so 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 it was becoming very popular so the question is well, what happened and again it was around that time early 1900s where certain people in the country were worried about drugs including alcohol which you know led to prohibition and we saw how well that went uh so you know that was you know in the 20s and 30s you know people worried about reefer madness and there was campaigns against that and what happened was is there was the attack Tax Act of 1937, which essentially taxed marijuana extremely heavily, which made it essentially not profitable to use those kind of tonics. So they fell out of favor because of a tax act. And it wasn't until the 60s, you know, where people were using drugs more openly, where you started to get some anecdotal reports of like cancer patients using it and people suffering using it. And then the science kicked in around that same time when uh, Dr. McCullum and Israel isolated delta nine tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the chemical compound of THC. Um, and so we were getting to some degree of being able to use it as a medicine. Uh, And what really stopped it was in 1970, was the Controlled Substances Act. And that's sort of what the FDA uses to classify medications into different levels of how scheduled or controlled it should be. So some medicines don't require a prescription. A lot of medicines do require a prescription. Some require special prescribing things like narcotics, for example are Schedule II and Schedule Three, so only certain doctors can write it and there's some restrictions. Marijuana was classified as a Schedule One drug, which by definition means it's high abuse potential and there's no accepted use. Well, we all know that that's not true, but that's how it was scheduled. There was a commission in 1972 that, that, that took this up to try to decriminalize it, but back then Pre- President Nixon and the Republican Congress decided to keep it as Schedule One, which it remains today. And so cannabis is federally illegal, though we're making some movement in that. We'll talk about in a little bit. And it really wasn't until the 90s with, with the AIDS epidemic where uh, patients who were very good self-advocates started uh, in buyer's clubs and things like that using uh, cannabis. And that led to the first legislation in the 90s in California, which is the first state to legalize it. And now medical cannabis is legalized in 36 states and the District of Columbia, and it keeps growing. Uh, so we'll get there. Um, so, so, so that's sort of where we are from a legal standpoint. Uh, so, so again, why should we be using medical cannabis and why will it never kill you? And so everything we do in medicine, at least in traditional medicine, is a risk benefit analysis. So I'll use cholesterol as an example. So if you have high cholesterol, that can lead to heart attacks and strokes and that can kill you and that's not good. Heart attacks are the leading cause of death in the United States. On the other hand, and we have cholesterol medicines prescription cholesterol medicines like lipitor and crestor medicines you might have heard of that lower cholesterol and can prevent heart attacks and strokes and there's good solid evidence that they do that but they also come with side effects and not every you know and you don't want to give everyone medicines if they don't need it so we have to you know what is the benefit of giving this medicine what's the risk of giving it what's the risk of not giving it and so we make those decisions every day and cannabis fits really well into that paradigm we know from some research uh again some limited research and a lot of you know know, what people tell us that it really helps but what's the downside what's the risk so when we think about risk of cannabis in conjunction with other medicines that we use and other substances that are considered recreational we look at you know well how likely are you going to be addicted and how likely it is to kill you and and sarah if you can put up the, uh, the slide so you know, so I like to show this slide when I talk to patients and I talk to uh, other clinicians. So this is, uh, this is from the DC Department of Health, a uh, presentation they did. And I don't know if you can read the text that well, I'll try to point it out. So this is looking at both dependence and looking at, addi- which is essentially addiction and lethality. And so the, the, the sort of the vertical or the y-axis is, is dependence. The higher you are, the more likely you are to get addicted. The horizontal or x-axis uh, is is lethality, and so to the left are, is low likelihood. To the right is high likelihood that it's going to kill you. So you can see from marijuana, which is all the way to the left and sort of sort of bottom half, that it is low in both addiction and lethality. And so you know it's 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 a, it's it's a pre, it's it, it's very very safe. If you look, you know next to it is caffeine. So so basically cannabis at, is as addictive as caffeine. So it's not that it's completely unaddictive. Uh, but it is very low risk of addiction. You don't really get tolerance or withdrawal to cannabis. And as far as lethality, um, you know, cannabis can't kill you. If you look at the right, you see alcohol, uh, which is a little bit higher up. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's moderately addictive, but also you know, it can kill you. We don't think about alcohol as killing people because um, not too many people die of alcohol toxicity. Uh, Why is that? Usually people, if they drink too much, they'll get sick, they'll throw up, they'll pass out. Um, So most people don't die of alcohol, uh, but you do have these situations where, for example, you know, college party and there's some hazing and the kid drinks way too much more than their body can handle and they can die. So alcohol can actually kill you. And then if you look at the top right corner, you can see things like heroin and morphine, and, you know, things, and even nicotine, nicotine is highly addictive, uh, doesn't kill you nearly as much, but it's, but it it can, it's up there. Um, And, you know, you can see why, you know, we have this opioid epidemic, because the narcotics, both heroin, as well as morphine, which is a prescription medicine, is both highly addictive and highly lethal. Um, Both cannabis and, and narcotics share similar pain pathways, but there's one big difference, which is that the receptors, the the cannabis receptors are all over the brain, but they there are very few receptors in the midbrain. The midbrain is the or the brain stem is the bottom part of the brain that does basic functions like keeping your heartbeat and keeping you breathing. It's thing you don't really think about those kind of things. Um, uh, and so there are a lot of uh, opioid receptors there. And what happens is when people die from narcotics, they die because they stop breathing. They basically pass out because. Uh, the brain receptors tell them to stop breathing. That's basically what happens. And so there's no endoc- there's no cannabis receptors, cannabinoid receptors in those parts of the brain. So no one's ever died from cannabis. So it is a relatively uh, safe, and non-addictive product that does a lot of therapeutic good. Uh, and so, you know, we have this opioid epidemic right now. I mean, there's a lot of uses for cannabis. There's anxiety, there's pain, there's all sorts of things. I wanna stick for a you know, since we have a limited time to the, you know, this opioid crisis. I mean, we have a real problem, people are dying all the time uh, from being addicted to these pain medicines. And um, you know we're, we're seeing rates go up and up. I mean, the, clearly the war on drugs has not worked and, and, and representatives are starting to recognize this and, and it's been slow. But, the, but where it's been clearly horrible is people dying on a regular basis. You know, before we had this COVID pandemic, so one of the biggest epidemics in our country was the, was the opioid epidemic. And while cannabis necessarily isn't the cure for that, it can certainly play a very large role in getting people off these sort of deadly uh, pain medicines. Sarah, if you could put up the next few slides. Um, the um, you know, th- there's definitely good uh, data that shows that cannabis can play a role. So this is a study uh, that looks at uh, prescriptions in, in states that have enacted medical cannabis laws. And just looking at pain, this is prescriptions per doctor per year. So doctors in states where medical cannabis is legal, write Almost 2,000 fewer prescriptions for pain per doctor per year than doctors in other states. So Sarah, you can go to the next slide. Um, and this is one of a few studies where we know, and again, this was published in, you know, the Journal of American Medical Association, a very well established medical journal, uh, looking at 244 patients with medical cannabis. And they found that, you know, more than half of those patients were able to reduce their opioid dose. So it, they can work in tandem. You can, even if you can't get patients off the op- opioids, you can lower their dose, which is a vef- basically harm reduction. And then the last slide, Sarah, you can show um, is uh, we know, for example, that in states that have legalized um, medical cannabis, uh, you can go to the next slide, Sarah. Well, I'll just tell you the, the results of that. Basically, in in um, in in states that have legalized medical cannabis, uh, what you see is that the uh, uh, the uh, the the or maybe maybe you go back one. Maybe we skipped one. In states that have legalized medical cannabis, uh, traffic fatalities, Or maybe I forgot to send you one, traffic fatalities, oh, there we go, here we go, thank you. Um, uh, What you can see is that the the death rates from opioids uh, in states that have legalized medical cannabis, it's really hard to see the graph on in this projection but you'll have to just trust me on this one Uh, the deaths from opioid overdoses in states that have legalized medical cannabis are much lower and that in states once they change from non-cannabis to a cannabis state uh the graph on the right shows that the death rate from opioid overdoses declined substantially all right thank you sarah so um so there's really good solid data that that cannabis can play an important role Uh, and so it's not going to kill you there's a lot of things it can do pain is one thing so i think um, you know, there's data in other areas like anxiety, and we can talk about that if, if you have questions. Um, so where are we all today? You know, so I think one of the like I, I said earlier, I found a hard time, you know, finding information and research about cannabis. And it's not that there isn't research. It's just it's not readily available for like the similar to like the cholesterol medicines. That I mentioned before and why is that well a lot of it has to do with the federal status it is federally illegal uh, to to have cannabis and means you can't research it so my office is in Bethesda Maryland about a mile or two down the road from my office is NIH the National Institutes of Health you know with this whole pandemic we've heard a lot from NIH and their doctors but they do more than just COVID they do you know basic research lots of cancer stuff uh tons of medical research they can't touch this stuff because it's a federal institution and cannabis is federally illegal. And so it would be great if they could do that. It's right down the street, but they can't touch it. And even like institutions, you know, private institutions like George Washington university where I'm on faculty, they're a private institution, but a lot of their research funding comes from NIH and other federal institutions and they don't want to risk losing that very important grant money. So a lot of people don't want to touch it. So changing that federal status, is really what's going to happen to help the research and you know and get the data that we need and so you know, one of the things you know, that I found, I couldn't find that information. I had to not only you know, take courses where I could find them and look up the evidence myself, but I spent a lot of time talking to expert, like some of the people that are on this panel, talking to some of the bud tenders. And the other thing that I found was that there was very little information for patients. I could not find it as a health professional. There was not very good clinical information for patients. There's tons on the internet. You can Google like marijuana and anxiety and you'll find things that says that it works. Maybe you'll sign some basic information about like the endocannabinoid system. You'll find tons of websites that say, you know, the top 10 strains for anxiety. And of course, all of them will be, you know, have different strains that are the top 10. And there was just so much confusion out there. And I thought this must be so difficult for for patients to find if I can't find it. So I actually decided to write a book. Um, Again, didn't think I would be a cannabis advocate, never thought I would be an author, but I did not feel that there was any good resource out there for patients on how to use medical cannabis. So I recently published a book, it's called Medical Marijuana and CBD, a Physician's Guide for Patients. It's available on Amazon that really, you know, is geared toward patients about sort of what, how it works, what the research is, the safety things, some of which I just went over and how you can use it for individual conditions. Um, so I'm happy to take uh, uh, more questions about that. So finally, um, you know, this, where are we? Where are we going? How are we going to get doctors to get ac- to accept this and make this more mainstream? And I think, at least with cannabis. Uh, it's going to be going down to uh, changing this uh, drug from a schedule one to a schedule two medication. You know, that's not going to make it, I'm not saying necessarily making it like that it's going to be legal, like it is in Canada, but if you can change that federal restriction and, and have some reciprocity from state to state, you'll be able to do those kind of re- that kind of research. That's necessary. And once you do the research and it gets published and communicated to sort of more traditional physicians, you know, based on what I've seen, they're gonna buy in in droves. I mean, that's what we want as physicians. We want medications to help our patients that have few side effects. And so I think you're gonna see that. I mean, we just had the Moore Act was just passed in Congress. So we finally have Congress passed, you know, this, you know, changing of the, of the legal status of medical cannabis. It's probably, at least before January, not going to pass in the Senate. But that's a big step forward. You know, I think there's going to, you know, there's a lot of things our country is going to have to do in the next few months during this pandemic. But I definitely see in the coming months, uh, there's definitely bipartisan support for this. I do see that as a big change. And in my mind, that's going to be the first step. Uh, to us, getting cannabis more mainstream, and so for patients not having to come to you know me because there's not very many doctors that have you know do medical cannabis as part of their practice, but rather their regular doctor will be knowledgeable about cannabis and be able to certify. So I'm hoping one day people won't need doctors like me because all the doctors will be doing it.
0: It's so important to hear the history of cannabis to see how this journey has been towards legalization. So many patients are using cannabis as medicine, and during the global pandemic, cannabis has been deemed essential.
1: We need to find a way to get more doctors comfortable talking about cannabis, and that starts with patients being open with their doctors about their medicinal cannabis use or desire to start using cannabis. The more we talk about how cannabis can help, the
0: better. We've had monumental moments that happened in the industry the past couple weeks. The House passing the MORE Act and the UN declassifying cannabis as a harmful drug. It will be exciting to see how the industry moves forward in 2021, and PMP will continue to bring you updates on cannabis news. Next at Awakening,
1: we advanced the conversation around plant medicine to include psychedelics, specifically psilocybin or magic mushrooms. We invited a young and vibrant doctor of pharmacy, Dr. Saad Alamat, who discusses the changing landscape around psychedelics and its rapid gaining acceptance in the medical community.
3: So I uh, recently graduated Duquesne University over in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with my Doctor of pharmacy degree. Uh, throughout my time at school, you know, I was learning so much about the different uh, medications out there, the different ways we can help treat patients' symptoms. Um, but for me, it's more, you know, I, I wasn't really, I, I, was, I realized that a lot of what I was learning was management of side effects and drug-drug interactions, which is so important. So important, we, like, you know, Western medicine has done remarkable things and in innovating uh, the The industry to help people you know live the lives they want to live, but I realized I was thinking like especially when it comes to mental health, why is there why have there been no innovations in you know over the last thirty to forty years and uh, it, it was through uh, you know being involved with some of the recreational side of the psychedelic uh, space I was introduced to uh, a lot of the anecdotal evidence surrounding suicide so being able to apply my learnings through school and how to disseminate literature and how to just kind of uh, understand the pharmacology of and the pathophysiology of disease states, I, I started you know looking deeper into what psilocybin is, and you know that was three years ago, and so much has transformed since my you know since I got introduced into this space. Um, there's a lot of potential here, guys. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. There's just so much potential. And it's a shame that the stigma surrounding, you know, the, the magic mushroom is uh, still lingering in the back of people's minds to where people will have a hard time uh, wanting to sh- talk about this in public. You know, we can't, even, we can't even go to like a coffee shop and talk about psychedelics because of how, you know, just the, the lack of it being normalized. And that's what I think we should all be collectively doing to try to change. Um, so, so yeah, quick overview about psilocybin. Psilocybin is the naturally occurring alkaloid found in uh, psilocybe mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, or magic mushrooms. Psilocybin is actually a prodrug, meaning that it needs to be metabolized so that way it's, it's actually uh, active in the body. So psilocybin gets dephosphorylated to what's called psilocin, okay? It's P-S-I-L-O-C-I-N, excuse me. So, psilocybin binds to the serotonin 2A receptors, okay, it's it an agonist to these receptors. Uh, believe it or not, majority of your serotonin receptors are actually found in your gut, not just your brain. That's a common misconception people have, um, so this is something to think about. But what happens is, when, is essentially this serotonin 2A receptor is more or less a, is a psychedelic switch, right, a majority of the classical psychedelic compounds um, so, such as uh, DMT, for example, uh, these act on the serotonin 2A receptors. So what happens here is still, um, is still kind of fuzzy, but what's going on is that there's this concept, the uh, subject of research called the default mode network. And what we're understanding at the moment, again, there's a big difference between causation versus correlation, but the idea is that the default mode network Right, which is associated with the, the organization of uh, of one's life. Right, the default mode network shuts down whenever the serotonin two receptors are are, are turned on. So what we see is a dissolution of boundaries of uh, of uh, organization found in in uh, in your in your life. And this is what why a lot of people feel that uh, sense of unity of being one with others. Right, being interconnected and connected with 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 everything and everyone. And it's beautiful. Who doesn't want to be, you know, involved feel? Who doesn't want to feel as though they're really involved in their community, or feel as though they're really part of like this this uh, this collective consciousness? Uh, so mm-hmm. it's, really, it's it's just really great to see how the neuroscience is able to tie in the subjective uh, and, and, and the subjective evidence that we're seeing on various Reddit posts to integration circles. So it's uh, it's amazing stuff. Um, but the thing is that psilocybin and magic mushrooms aren't anything new, right? We've had these, and, and as, uh, as Doc said in the, in the, in the, right, right, before, uh, speaking, right before I speaking, Ryan came on to speak, you know, plant medicine and especially fungal medicine have been around for eons. I mean, uh, we see cave paintings in southeastern Algeria dating back to tens of thousands of years ago with bee and mushroom shaman creatures depicted on these, on these walls. We have uh, we have a lot of uh, mushroom statues depicting the religious uh, and spiritual uh, correlations to medicinal mushroom use and mushroom use, especially in the community setting. So there, yeah, and the, uh, Douglas Finkelstein, thank you, the Stone and Ape Theory, Terrence McKenna, Stone and Ape Theory. Remark, I mean, it's just an amazing. I mean, it's it's a hypothesis. First of all, we can't prove it happened, but I think an article came out not too long ago that helped reinforce some of the ideas that Terrence McKenna. A very famous ethnobotanist spoke uh, when he was uh, regarding his Stone Day theory. Highly recommend checking that out too. Yeah, thank you for throwing that in the chat. So, well, what, what I'm trying to say is that you know psilocybin mushrooms have been around for a while. The safety profile is outstanding, um, and, and the in the graph that uh, Dr. W- is it Dr. Mensby was able to put on, you see, you actually, I'm not sure if uh, Sarah is able to put that on right now, but you can see psilocybin LSD. Uh, even lower on that chart uh, relative to to THC, so that that's 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 amazing. And similarly to uh, what what the doc said, uh, you know, the Controlled Substance Act, unfortunately, you know, uh, lumps psilocybin into a Schedule One compound. You know, meaning that there's high high abuse potential and no medicinal value at all. Um, we are now realizing that's not to be the case, All right. So there's just, uh, there's so much potential here is really what it comes down to. Um, and, you know, it comes, it's, it's just uh, unfathomable to think that for tens of thousands of years, you know, this mushroom, right, not, not some synthetic, you know, you know uh, home, like lab, like lab uh, made, you know, trailer park type of uh, like, uh, um, compound, like and that's very that's a big generalization, so I apologize for that. But it's it's a mushroom that you can grow literally anywhere. You know, you can go to a, if you wanna go to a cow field, a cow patty field, after a rainy day, you can have your grams upon grams of schedule one substance. Um, so it's uh it's just something to really think about as to, you know, why is it that these compounds are illegal? So I highly recommend everyone to look into some of what happened in the Harvard psilocybin project, look into some of the, uh, the elements surrounding Timothy Leary and uh, the counterculture uh, era uh, in the 60s, and to see, you know, why, what the political climate was like and why these compounds are currently scheduled One. But, you know, it's, it's great to see that we, have, we are able to have these conversations now. Um, yeah, and thank you, Joey, at yeah, the Harvard psilocybin project awesome book. Um, So yeah, we're all on the same page. That's awesome to see. So yeah, I really wanted to to talk about the history, the historical implications of this all. Um, You know, the indigenous community has been, for example, Maria Sabina, she's a a, a very, very prominent name in the psychedelic space. And it's important that as decisions are made, especially in policy and in medicine, that we are able to to still pay our respects and, and express you know solitude for the people that have done so much for where we're for where we're at today, uh, so just it's, it's very important to take that in consideration. Moving forward to the the clinical trials that are coming out, you have amazing research uh, institutes such as Johns Hopkins, NYU, Imperial College of London. A lot a lot of areas uh, are around the world are. Are doing amazing, amazing studies on psilocybin and other classical psychedelics. And uh, you know, it's we need more. We just need more so we can have clear-cut decisions for the medical community to 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 align with when it comes to recommending these compounds to their patient groups. We haven't had breakthrough, we haven't had innovation that in this area of in mental health for nearly again 40 years. So that is, uh, is something to be very excited about. Um, recently, uh, we've, we've seen a lot of decriminalization occur, and that's a very, thanks to a lot of the great folks and chapters at the Decrim uh, Nature Network. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it. The, uh, oh, I forget Larry's last name. My apologies, Larry, if you're listening to this. But they're outstanding guys. Their ethos are, are, are great. So when it comes to you know, what can we do next, I think you need to start with your community, right? You just need to start building community. That means reaching out to folks in your zip, in your, in your building, your your household, your inner circle, just to go on a on a curiosity hunt with each other to learn what what is this space all about, what are psychedelics all about, and. That'll just open the door to so much more. I mean, I know a lot of people in the chat were talking about their interest in fungi. You know, the fungal kingdom is just extraordinary. I mean, it's just absolutely extraordinary. I know today's conversation is about plant medicine. Um, so, it's, you know, even the non psycho even the non psychoactive fungi have so much potential and at least symptom of alleviation at at as a, a minimal. Um, so, I highly recommend checking out a book called The Fungal Pharmacy. It talks about a plethora of different fungi, uh, it's mycelium, the different symptoms it can help manage, potential indications for use, uh, really, really recommend checking that book out again. That's The, the Fungal Pharmacy. So again, we have decriminalization, and, and that's, that I, think, that I think when it comes to policy change, that needs to be the absolute foundation to what things are built upon, right? This is how we ensure equitable access because i don't know if you guys understand but we are in such a very monumental point of time because it's not a question of is psilocybin going to be accessible or, or legal but is it going to be accessible you know how is it going to be legal right when is it going to be legal the fact that the fda has already granted breakthrough designation for this compound you know there's a lot there's they already understand its potential clinical utility you have a lot of money right now in the big pharma world, and I really believe that, that we should have as many options as possible, but it should not be solely to pharmaceuticalized, synthetic CGMP-grade psilocybin. It can, it cannot be, because again, like it's a it's a mushroom. How can you how can you keep a mushroom in this and this naturally occurring alkaloids, Schedule One. But then make it so that way people with the right type of insurance or indications or diagnosis can potentially have some type of access to CGMP grade psilocybin. I think it needs that needs to be one option. It can't be the only option. Which is why decriminalization fundamentally needs to happen either before medicalization or with medicalization. Me, I I really believe that it can, I think I really believe there's a way we can marry the two being medicalization and decriminalization, because that is the path forward to as many options as possible, to bridging the gap between our uh, our psychedelic communities and the medical communities. That's an absolute necessity. Uh, We have an awesome association called the Psychedelic Medicine Association that is uh, is looking to do that for medical professionals, uh, because I believe that there are more people talking to their doctors now, not just about cannabis, but also other plant medicines, including psilocybin. Uh, peyote you know uh, uh, like the ayahuasca and we need to be able to have answers in order to have answers we need more research so policy 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 is really what it comes down to and that that means that we need to be advocating and we start with advocating not just by doing this online not not by posting on 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 like uh, anonymously on reddit but we need to really just start representing the movement because if like, I I I'm still I've still yet to I'm I'm still looking for reasons to why I should not be in space, you know why we should not be pushing pushing the perspective forward. So uh, I know this wasn't as formal as uh, the doc's uh, previous uh, speech, and thank you again for that uh, wonderful uh, wonderful educational topic discussion. But uh, yeah, I really wanted to hone hone this topic today uh, with, with the time I had to provide that overview as to what psilocybin is pharmacologically, a brief a, a brief history of it, a safety profile, um, and you know where we're at in terms of the policy and the the need for being active. We need to be active. We need to be we need to start talking. And just because there's a stigma, we have to push through that. We really have to push through that, guys, because you know, conversation is what's going to spark curiosity. That curiosity is going to lead to digging into the research. And although there hasn't been a lot of research, there's quite a bit. Quite a bit to where even if you're, sci- if you're, if you're scientifically minded, if you replace psilocybin with any other compound, you'd look at this and be like, why the hell is this still illegal? That's, that's, that's what you'd ask. So conversation, advocacy, I highly, highly recommend building community. And that means looking up, to see if you have a a psychedelic club in your area. Uh, I'm the vice president of the Psychedelic Club of Pittsburgh. Please, please come to join our meetings on a month. Every month, we host a uh, peer support group to where people can navigate their challenging psychedelic experiences. We have uh, therapists uh, on the the board that help as well. It's not therapy, but it's therapeutic. Um, So I highly recommend people just to do that to get involved with their community. If you're in the Pittsburgh area, please, you're more than welcome to join. Um, There's an amazing platform that my friend Mitchell Wilson is building out called psychedelicgrad.com. I really recommend people checking that out too. Um, Silo Health is the company that I'm co-founder of. Um, My my co-founder counterpart, his name is Isaiah Noriega. He's a clinical psychologist over in the Baltimore area. And we'd love to yeah, we'd love to have you guys check out our website. It's just a basic landing page right now, but feel free to throw your email in there. And we're looking to continue building community as well and provide similar events like this for uh, accessible, affordable, free education. And that's also one topic I wanted to talk about today, too, is not just about equitable access for patients. I said that's, that's a necessity. We need safety for patients. absolutely. But like we need to be talking about healer inclusivity, right? Just because I'm a pharmacist, just because my good friend Isaiah, he's a therapist, does not mean we're the only ones that should be involved in the continuum of care of psychedelic therapy, right? I, I think that when it comes to the to the, the fact that these these uh these experiences have been so inground, grounded in the community aspect, I really believe that there are ways to create courses, certification programs with, no, with little bar, bar to access. So that way, folks like yourselves, with or without a college degree, even with or without a high school degree, that really just want to be able to, to, to help someone navigate their own psyche, I really believe that that is a possibility in the, in the upcoming psychedelic renaissance, or the parent psychedelic renaissance too. So uh, with that, guys, uh, again, healer inclusivity, patient access, decrim, and medical. I mean, uh, if you ever need anything whatsoever, please feel free to reach out. And I really, really look forward to being a part of this panel discussion. I look forward to any of your questions, comments, criticisms. And thank you so much, everyone, for, uh, yeah, for listening to me
0: rant. <laughs> I can listen to Dr. Sodrant rant all day. We should invite him onto our podcast to dive in a bit deeper on this topic. What do you think, Elizabeth? I agree. There's lots on this topic, and it's exciting to see such a young medical professional be so open with his passion around psychedelics.
1: You're right, Gina, and he makes such great points around how these plant medicines have been around for ages. None of this is new. These plants and fungi are part of our natural world. And now, more than ever, as we suffer through this collective trauma of coping with the pandemic, Many of us are filled with feelings of loneliness, isolation, and fear.
0: And wellness is not just our physical being. Our mental health is just as important to our well-being, and we need to acknowledge the mental health crisis in America and be open to how others choose their path to cope and heal. Not everyone's journey will be the same,
1: but our willingness to be accepting and compassionate towards others is what will build a stronger community. Plant medicine can be a tool to help heal the pains of trauma,
0: anxiety, and depression, but there is still much to learn. Plant Media Project appreciates the outpouring of support that we have received from our local and global community. We feel that this is an important moment in history. And we are humbled to be a part of exposing the changing landscape around these sacred plants and hope that you'll join us along this journey in 2021. Awakening will be a special series of free online virtual events that will continue in the new year. Keep posted on upcoming events by following Plant Media Project on social media and visiting us online at plantmediaproject.com. Thank you for listening to The Vine, a plant media project podcast. Please subscribe now wherever.